On today's podcast, we're welcoming a professor from Butler University who teaches English teachers. We do get pretty technical here, but there's also some interesting conversation about what makes a good teacher. And I know that a lot of people out there listening to Rachel's English are ESL teachers, so there's going to be some interesting stuff here. We also discuss strategies for teaching someone how to help new students from foreign countries understand American culture. For a free transcript of the episode, just visit rachelsenglish.com slash podcast and search for this episode. Here we go. We're here with Dr. Brooke Candle Cisco, who is a teacher of ESL teachers. And we've got some questions today to pick her brain about the field of teaching English as a second language. Brooke, what is your degree in? Um, my degree is a doctor of philosophy and educational psychology with uh, an emphasis in bilingual and ESL education. Educational psychology. Yes. What, what does that even mean? Uh, educational psychology is um, really a field that studies patterns in human behavior and seeks to better understand human behavior. Um, however, the specific program I was in um, was really very much more focused on language, language development. Um, and it, it did take a somewhat behavioralist approach to language development, though. And what is your current job title? Um, I'm an associate professor of English as a Second Language at Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. So what, what does your job in, entail at this point? Um, so primarily I teach courses to um, undergraduate students, so students who are in college who want to become teachers. Some of them want to be math teachers or science teachers, and others want to only focus on English as a Second Language when they graduate. Um, I also work with graduate students who are um, already classroom teachers and they're pursuing an ESL license. So they are learning how to work as a, specifically as an English as a second language teacher in the schools. So your undergrad students who are not going to be ESL teachers, but who are going to be math teachers or this kind of thing, mm -hmm. are they taking classes with you as a resume builder kind of thing to say, and I have some ESL training, or what would be the incentive for a math teacher to do that? Mm -hmm. um, well, our program actually requires uh, every teacher who's going to be a middle school or high school teacher to take two ESL classes as a part of their degree. And that's um, pretty unique amongst teacher preparation programs. Um, and the idea behind that is If you can successfully teach students who don't speak English and you know some of the techniques and the ways to reach those students, um, you're very likely to be able to reach some of the other students too. So in those two required ESL classes, we don't just talk about specific methods, but we also talk about sociocultural contexts, how you connect with people who are different from you, how you make sure your school environment is equitable for all learners. So a lot of what we teach um, for specifically for ESL preparation applies to all students. And we want students to graduate and be prepared to teach every single student in their classroom. And you mentioned um, being licensed as an ESL teacher. Mm -hmm. Can you say, what does is, what is the state of Indiana sort of require? What does that process look like for people who are pursuing that? Um, so in Indiana, and in each state is different. Um, in Indiana, you have to have an initial teaching license in um, a content area if you're a middle or secondary teacher, so biology or chemistry or math or English. 
Um, and then only once you have that initial license can you add an ESL license. So an ESL license is considered an add-on license that you, you have to already be licensed to get a second license. Um, and it includes uh, required coursework as well as taking an exam connected to the TESOL standards for ESL teachers. These are just standards that the TESOL organization has created that they want all people who are teaching English as a second language to kindergarten through 12th grade students have these um, certain standards mastered. Mm. What are those standards? What are the things? Because we're always talking about how Rachel, um, you know, part of what's unique is that her method has developed without formal training. And so we're always curious to hear about um, in more formal contexts, what, what does it look like? What are, you know, what's being expected of teachers? Typically, when we think about teaching ESL, we often just think of language, that really all we're doing is teaching students how to understand and speak a language. The TESOL standards um, are much more comprehensive in terms of addressing all the elements that an ESL teacher would um, deal with in a classroom situation. So the first domain in TESOL, the TESOL standards, is language. So that's really looking at language as a structure, the patterns of language, um, understanding um, like how to break down English words. They do a little bit with the um, the International Phonetic Alphabet, although they don't have to have that mastered. Oh, I love IPA. Yes. And so oftentimes we get folks like Rachel, perhaps, who love language, who are very obsessed with like the, the discrete parts of language. And that's one skill that teachers need to have. And what we work on with Um, students is also developing the other domains. So the instructional domain, so understanding how to teach language in a way that is meaningful for K-12 students. And so for adults, that's different than for students who are expected to keep up in science and keep up in math. And so part of that is teaching teachers how to teach English through their content area so that you're kind of getting a double whammy because students don't have enough time. They only have 12 years in the United States to catch up in terms of learning English and then learn the content. We have to do both at the same time. They have to be learning the content and they have to be learning language at the same time. So that's really one of, um, maybe it's even too late to say it's a trend at this point, but that's one of the assumptions in the field of ESL um, for K-12 students is that it's content-based. We're no longer pulling kids out to do ESL instruction out of the classroom, or in general, we shouldn't be doing that. When did that change, do you think? Um, Within the past 10 years, for sure, um, a pull-out ESL method has really fallen out of favor, Hmm. um, just because kids miss out on the content then when they're outside of the classroom, and we end up teaching them language in a more discreet, kind of isolated way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, not real life. Right, not real life, not what they actually need. So there are certain cases where it might be appropriate to do that with a student. For example, maybe a student who has just arrived in eighth grade and doesn't speak one word of English, just putting them in a content class, even with a, an excellent content teacher who knows how to teach ESL, is still going to be pretty difficult for that student. So there are some cases where it's appropriate, but in general, um, TESOL and um, really ESL professionals advocate for the ESL teacher to push into the classroom and support the ESL students within the content area. It's interesting, Rachel, if you think about your approach over these years, you've done a lot of, if your content area is real life, you know, you deliver a lot of technical information and a lot of, you know, some of your nuanced, uh, you get into nitty gritty, whether it's IPA or other kinds of uh, the ways that that native speakers actually sound, 
but your content area has so often been real life, whether it's how to how to introduce yourself to someone else or, or these other kinds of real life videos. It's just interesting that over the last 10 years in academia, that's a trend. And that sort of, yeah. you know, that mirrors your work over the last 10 years. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Way to go. Thank you. Way to be ahead of the curve. Wow. Trendsetter. Definitely. <laughs> So um, the other domains within the TESOL standards, culture is one, um, and that is the whole idea that language is not neutral and language is contested and negotiated within a sociocultural context. So just because we can speak perfect English if we don't understand, um, I mean, you could say some of the pragmatics, but it goes beyond that. If you don't understand the context and, and really the power that language brings and the way we use language to get what we want and how power is used or how language is used as a tool um, for some students to get ahead and some students not to. Um, That's really what we talk about in this domain is helping um, our pre-service teachers understand the equity issues in schools. What is a pre-service? One that has not yet entered the classroom? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One who's preparing to be be a teacher. Um, So we really, in domain two, it's very easy to teach like um, what they call uh, flags, fiestas, and foods as far as culture, but we we really try to resist that in our programs and encourage our teachers to think about how do you dig underneath the surface of culture and how do you start asking those really difficult questions in schools um, that are actually going to have a long-term impact on our English language learners that yeah. aren't just about celebrating, you know, the food that they eat at lunch or at dinner, um, but it goes right. beyond that and really having deep understanding of culture. And what that means. <clears throat> what are you discovering as far as how to teach, how, how to expose on a deep level the culture so that those people have an advantage that natives have? I mean, what, what have you found there? Um, well, one of the things we do with our students in our program is we teach them um, using critical literacy invitations. Um, and those were developed um, by a woman, or they have really been promoted by a faculty member. Um, who works out of Chicago, basically using um, questions about issues that are affecting students' lives, issues that relate to race and equity, and really push students. And we use those with our undergraduates to show them how to use them with their future students. Mm. And so I had one student who, um, he was already a licensed teacher, but he came back for his ESL license. And he was um, teaching in a school environment that was very quickly gentrifying. And he had eighth graders. So they were kind of on the tail end of the group of students who had lived there their entire lives and whose grandparents lived there. But Can they- you define gentrifying quickly for people who might not know that vocabulary word? Yes. So gentrifying is... Um, well, one way of describing it is perhaps there's been a certain group of people who have lived in the neighborhood for a long time. And suddenly that neighborhood becomes very popular with another group of people, typically um, folks who have more um, financial means. And they can afford to move into the neighborhood and they raise the home prices. And once a few families move there, then other families move there, and then it makes it very difficult for the families who perhaps are of um, lesser financial means to remain in the neighborhood. So gentrifying mm -hmm, is often seen as something that pushes out people that have been there for maybe generations. For generations. And there's often a race component to it as well. Very often um, people of color are being pushed out and white middle class folks are coming into the neighborhood, although that's not always the case, but Mm -hmm. it generally is. Um, So this school community was really struggling with that, and he developed 
um, a whole bunch of critical literacy invitations, many focused on gentrification and changes in tax code and all sorts of different invitations for students to explore those issues in their own school community while also um, hitting the social studies standards. He was a social studies teacher and helping them develop their language. So it's just a um, very meaningful way for students to use language in context to help them understand their own situation and then ultimately to help them use their voice to advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I mean, I guess if you're really trying to get somebody who's new to the United States to have a deeper understanding of culture, you have to do that and sort of home in on their experience and speak to that specifically mm-hmm. in order to ground them in to what's happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what we're really trying to do is just sensitize teachers to the experiences of their students because um, some ESL programs sometimes try to teach students like, oh, well, your Mexican students will have these traditions. Your Indian students will have these traditions. But that's really dangerous for obvious reasons. I mean, it typically tends to overgeneralize the experience of students. But we can't expect a teacher to go into a school and understand the culture of every single kid because every kid brings their own, their own culture, their own identities. And so it's more sensitizing them to the fact that your view of the world is not everyone else's and helping them be open and look for their students' experiences. Um, and the woman who really um, helped teachers become aware of critical literacy invitations is Katie Van Sluis. Um, and she is a researcher out of Chicago. Cool. The fourth um, domain in the TESOL standards is assessment, and that is really looking at all of the issues around assessment for English language learners, for students who are learning English as a second language in our schools. And some of that has to do with assessing their language level. So when an English as a second language teacher receives a new student, they always have to assess their English proficiency level. Is Um, there a standard test that they use for that? Um, it's changing in, in states. It's, it, it depends on the state, really. Um, states are primarily using um, WIDA, which used to be an acronym, and now they are just known as WIDA. <laughs> and so uh, WIDA standards um, uh, help content area teachers teach English, but then also they have some language proficiency standards under WIDA as well. And so they have a placement test um, that teachers use initially to help us understand a student's uh, level of English proficiency. But the assessment standard, probably more importantly, we look at issues of bias in assessments and helping um, ESL teachers become great advocates for their ESL students. So for example, um, with high-stakes standardized tests in um, the U.S., helping teachers understand where are the places that there's some wiggle room for ESL students in terms of timing of when they have to take a high-stakes test and what that means for them. Um, Unfortunately, at least um, in Indiana, they're not very generous with giving English language learners very much extra time. Um, So they don't, the the state doesn't really work from a place of understanding language development and language acquisition and that it takes minimum of five to seven years. It sounds like they could use some sensitizing Yes, I agree. They could be more open to the experiences of language learners, for sure. But that's the case with every single student in our public schools. The uh, legislator could perhaps be a little bit more open to understanding student experiences. So assessment is really helping teachers understand um, how do we assess in a way that gives us meaningful information while balancing some of the requirements from the state. And all, uh, all the while keeping learners at the center of what we do. 
Um, and then the final standard is uh, professionalism. And that is really this whole idea of how do you work collaboratively with the other teachers in your building. Oftentimes, ESL teachers are somewhat invisible in K-12 schools. Um, because of their student population. So ESL teachers might have 120 English language learners on their teaching load, um, but they don't carry a lot of power with that and they don't um, have a lot of like social capital in the school necessarily. And so part of it is um, helping ESL teachers learn how to lift up ESL students amongst the content area teachers and remind them you two are responsible for teaching the mm. student. And that's one of the great things with the WIDA standards is that the standards are not only for ESL teachers or for language teachers, they're for all teachers. And it's really an explicit statement that all teachers are teachers of English language learners, which is a change from what was happening previously. Yeah. So actually... I would love to step back a little bit um, and hear before you were teaching teachers, you were in the classroom. So <clears throat> I'd love to hear a little bit about your work experience in the classroom. And and maybe even before that, maybe you can talk about how you got interested in this field in the first place. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, I was a psychology and Spanish major in um, college. And once I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that I really wanted to learn Spanish. That was my number one kind of goal at that point in my life. And so I moved to the southern border of Texas, and I worked as a volunteer, um, something similar to the AmeriCorps program where volunteers are placed all over the U.S. And I worked as an immigrant advocate in the court system. And... Primarily what I did is worked with women who were um, undocumented in the United States, and they were married to men who were citizens and who used their undocumented, the women's undocumented status against the women. So they were typically abusers, and they told the women, if you report me, or if you report me that I'm abusing you, you're going to get deported. And so I worked there about a year and a half, and I only got, I think, three women approved that entire time. You were trying to get them approved for documented citizenship. Well, residency, Residency, at least, in the United States. And I just found that terribly frustrating and just overwhelming that the system was so was set up in a way that was contrary to my values and the, the lives of these women and their children. And I often interacted with the children while I was interviewing the women and working with them. And that's really what piqued my interest in English as a second language and in teaching. So I I went back and in grad school for my master's degree, I got a teaching license in English as a second language and bilingual education. And at the time in Texas, it was the late 90s. They were desperate for bilingual teachers. And so I got a job right away at an elementary school that was um, in Houston, Texas, an urban school with about 90% of the population being English language learners. Wow. it's a lot. Yeah. And so I worked as a bilingual ESL teacher. And what that means in that context is that we taught um, some of the content in Spanish, which was the student's native language. And then we taught some of the content in English as a language in a way that was very structured and supportive for them so that they could continue to learn the content while they were learning um, the language. And that was really based under the assumption that students who are fully literate in their native language have a much better chance in the long run of being fully literate in English. So it was a um, like a, a late exit bilingual program. So they stayed in bilingual education until about sixth grade. 
And is that the one job you had before going to get your PhD? Yes. I was a teacher in that elementary school for about six years. Um, Some of the time as a classroom teacher and then the last couple of years as the building ESL teacher, um, where I just provided extra support to students who needed it. Um, And that was really kind of what propelled me to get my doctorate is just interest in the complexities of language learning. And I did see a lot of inequities in our school, even with the fact that 90% of the population um, was learning English. It just, it, it, it wasn't right. There were so many um, places where, I guess I can give you an example. Um, so they were in a bilingual program. They were be t- being taught in Spanish, but very often the assessments that I had to give them were either in English or they were in very poorly translated Spanish. So we were giving them the benefit of teaching them in their native language, but yet they couldn't show it on the standardized test because the tests were poorly made. They were biased against them linguistically, culturally, socioeconomically. And so that's really what kind of piqued my interest in digging more deeply into the field of ESL. So I'm curious then from your own classroom experience, as well as in the years since working with many people who are who have been and are going to be in the classroom. What do you think are some of the traits either that you developed or that your your uh, sort of top students have had that have made them really stand out as as excellent excellent teachers of English? Um I think primarily um the assumption when they when they're able to um really live into this idea that I'm not just a teacher of English or I'm not just a teacher of math. I'm a teacher of students, of learners, of humans. And when they keep that at the center of all they do, that looks very different than someone who really loves math and eh, kids are okay, you know, but I really love math. And you see a big difference in the way that they interact with students when the students are the heart of what they're doing. Um, I have a very relational philosophy of teaching. And I think if you don't have a relationship with a student, it doesn't matter how great you are of a mathematician or a writer, the kids know it and they don't respond to you as well. So I think that's the number one thing is the relationship with the student and having the student at the heart of everything you do. And from there, that really leads to being an advocate for students. And so you can do a great job in your classroom, and that is kind of the primary space of a classroom teacher. But if you're not willing to also advocate for those same students outside with other teachers, with the building administrator, with the community members, you're really doing a disservice to your students. So some of the greatest teachers are the ones who see themselves as much more than just a math teacher or a biology teacher. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think, um, I mean, again, Rachel, to your to your sort of approach over these years, you've had this idea that people, whether it's in a job interview or within a context of significant relationships in their life, you have sort of, I think, that idea that you see your work as helping people in these real situations. You know, people who are advanced in terms of fluency, but you've really put that idea forward and, and front and center that you want to be able to have them feel confident and grounded in, in both understanding and sounding um, like a native speaker because it, it affects so much of their life experience. Yeah. And actually that, that brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you, Brooke, is that as David has just pointed out, sounding like a native speaker, as much as the student wants to has been important to me. And I know that that's not a part of the K through 12 curriculum at all. Uh Do you think at any point it, it would be fair? I mean, if someone comes over at 16 
without ever having had a native teacher and without ever having really spoken English, can that person pick up a native or a close to native accent without ever having that be being specifically addressed? I mean, obviously as a young kid, their, Mm -hmm. their brains are such that they don't need to be taught pronunciation. They Mm -hmm. just need to hear Mm -hmm. native pronunciation, but the older you get, the harder that is. Do you think that truly nowhere between K through age 18, is there a need to specifically address pronunciation? Um, it, it, pronunciation is definitely very controversial in the field. Um, and the primary reason, um, I think, for the lack of focus on pronunciation with K through 12 students is they just have so many other things that they're having to attend to that it's kind of like the last layer. But wouldn't that make their lives easier in some ways? Wouldn't that help them feel more assimilated if they were not able to pick up a native accent without getting help and specific tips on that? I wouldn't say that it wouldn't be helpful. I think that would be very helpful. And if we had all the time in the world and there wasn't a rush to get them to graduate by a certain date, then yeah, I would, I would be all for it. I mean, I think it's possible. Um, and I know you're doing great work in that area. Um, I just think when you're dropped in a classroom and you don't understand anything and someone teach you to read in a language you don't even know and you can't understand. I mean, imagine learning to read your, for your first time in a language you don't understand. I just I can hardly comprehend that in my mind that that's just so far beyond what you're ready to do at that point. Now, I do think there are students who move very quickly, perhaps because they have um, very well-developed first language literacy skills, and they have an understanding of how language works. They learn English quickly. And I think for those kiddos, for sure, if, if pronunciation would be helpful to them and they're interested in that, I, I'm not opposed to that whatsoever. I just, it's, unfortunately, that doesn't happen that often with students that we get in general. They have too many other things that need to be worked on. Yes. So not only language, but content and social, like navigating social situations. And oftentimes ESL students are, of course, immigrant families and their parents are gone all the time working three jobs, trying to make ends meet. So it's just kind of, if we think of, I guess it's almost like um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you could kind of make it parallel to that, that it's like the last thing on our to-do list as Mm -hmm. far as teachers developing that. But that's not to say if a, if a student um, wants to know, am I pronouncing this correctly? Of course, I would, I would tell them how to do that. It's, yeah. it's more um, reacting and being responsive to the specific student. Mm-hmm. Now, there are times when students are pronouncing things so incorrectly, and perhaps it's something offensive, or perhaps you know, they're getting frustrated by that, that I would definitely teach them um, kind of more discreet pronunciation skills. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. And I think it's different with adults who have perhaps a better sense of who they are and what they want and what's next for them in life that I would, for me, it seems like that's a better fit for adults to kind of seek that out. It does seem like for a lot of my adult students, it is the final piece of what they need to make happen Mm -hmm. for themselves. Mm -hmm. I think it's um, an interesting kind of line of inquiry is to think about how pronunciation and identity fit together for students, for immigrant students. And um, oftentimes, especially middle and high school students, um, develop an identity of resistance to what they perceive as like school culture, which um, kind of standard English pronunciation would fall under school culture. 
that they almost intentionally try to kind of resist sounding like a native speaker because it's part of their identity to be a little bit different and to resist kind of these assumptions that are placed on them. So I think I, I don't have a lot to say about that, but I think it's an interesting thing to consider yeah. how identity and pronunciation and all that fit together in terms of how a student sees themselves. Yes, and how people perceive them. One comment that I get on my videos sometimes is, why do you think everyone needs to sound American? Mm -hmm. And my response is, I don't think that at all. Yeah, I am not telling people that they need to sound American. I'm trying to help people sound however they want to sound. Mm -hmm. Some people want to sound American because they've lived here for 30 years and they just want to 100% be American and sound American. And they don't want people asking them anymore where they're from. Mm -hmm. Other people just want to be able to be understood and they don't care if they have an accent. They're happy with mm -hmm. that. They just want to be able to converse more easily. So I think I do think it's controversial because it has to do with, you know, the attitude of, you know, if you're in America, speak English. And if you're okay. telling people they shouldn't have an accent, then that's that is saying, you know, who you are and where you're from isn't valued here, mm -hmm. which is never my intention with that. My intention is always to help people meet their communication goals. Mm -hmm. Brooke, I have one final question for you. Um, what makes you excited about your job teaching teachers? Um, what makes me the most excited is really um, just the ability to open up teachers' perspectives to the lives of English language learners. And I, I mean, I, I grew up in a small town where I probably never interacted with someone who didn't speak English until, I don't know, I was probably 15 or 16 years old. And so um, many of my students come from similar background where they just haven't been exposed to people who are different from them. And so the um, the opportunity to kind of invite them into the cultural richness that we have in our country and, and throughout the world and understanding diversity and issues of equity. There's just so much that they have yet to experience. And I love being able to invite them into that um, and to make it a part of their professional life, that it's not just you do step one, two, three, and you're a great teacher, that there are all these complexities that they need to learn to wrestle with. And that's really one of the great things about being a teacher is you just never stop learning. Great advice for anyone. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Candle Cisco, for coming on this podcast and sharing all your insight. We really appreciate it. And again, if you need some help with the words, you couldn't understand everything, no problem at all. Visit rachelsenglish.com slash podcast and you can find a, tr a free copy of the transcript for this episode. If you're not subscribed to this podcast, please be sure to do that at iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're inclined, please feel free to leave a review. I do read them all, and it's great for me to get feedback on what you like or don't like about this podcast. <laughs>